All right, we're going to start in verse uh, 9 and then work our way through verse 22 today. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can get there. Otherwise, we have Bibles in the chair backs in front of you, and we'll also have the words up on the screen, I believe, as well. Um, So here's where we're at. As we come to the very tail end of this letter of 2 Timothy, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul uh, at the very end of his life. Uh, This this is where Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's in a hole in the ground somewhere in Rome, uh, awaiting his, his, uh, the, the verdict basically to decide whether he can live or, or whether they'll put him to death. And uh, he knows, as we saw last week, he's aware that this is not going to go well for him as far as his physical life on earth goes. He knows that this is going to lead, this imprisonment will lead to his, his death. And so he is writing to Timothy, who has been a son in the faith, a, a younger man that, that Paul has invested in, raised up, prepared for ministry. And now more or less what he's doing is he's passing on the baton to Timothy and saying, here's what, here's what you need to do to carry the gospel forward into the next generation. And so he's reflecting on those things. He's, ref- he's bringing Timothy back to the central message of the gospel and, um, and now, as, after he gets through all of that, uh, we started this in verse, last week in verse 6. He basically turns from instructing Timothy uh, on what he needs to do to just basically Paul reflecting on his own life, uh, the things that happened, and his, his upcoming death and, and what that means for him. And so we saw that last week as he reflects on these things, and shares these things with Timothy and, and with us, um, that Paul is just steadfast in his hope that, that in life and death, Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness is what we have to bank on. That it's not about what we do. It's not about us doing enough. It's about all that Jesus has done to save us for, from his death on the cross to his resurrection and how that righteousness then is uh, imputed or given to us by faith. Paul is steadfast in his hope in these things. And he's just ref- he was reflecting, as we saw last week, on this crown of righteousness that Jesus will give to him when he is face to face with the Lord Jesus. But then he tells us it's not just for Paul that gets this crown of righteousness. It's for all who, who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. And that includes you and me, if that's where we are in our lives. So as we turn now to the final section, here's, here's just an interesting thing that we're going to see. Um, we're going to see that Paul really loves people. It's really amazing. Actually, Paul has just, throughout all of his letters, displayed this real love for other people. Uh, I, I was thinking about this the other, I don't know, a month or two ago, um, and just reading through a lot of the letters of Paul, every letter he writes, he's got this list of, of shout outs that he's given to all these people. Like, oh, say hi to this person. Tell them that I'm thinking about them. I'm praying for you guys. We love you. Uh, all these things that are just so profoundly beautiful. And, and Paul loved people and, and, and reflected that in virtually every letter. And this letter is no exception that as Paul is even now at the end of his life and knows he's at the end of his life, uh, he is still extremely grateful for, for people that have played a role in his ministry and in his life and encouraging 
him in Jesus. Um, but what we're going to see today is, is that the people in Paul's life are a mixed bag. It, it's, some people he mentions here are positive uh, people. Some have had a negative impact in his life. And he's reflecting on this, on some people who have helped him, others who have hurt him, some stuck with him, some deserted him. And yet what we see in all of this, and I think what we need to hear from this, is that just with Paul's life, it is with ours, that people play a role for good or for ill in our lives. And, and we need to unpack how to, how to deal with that. How, how do we... How do we handle people in our lives, whether they're positive uh, experiences or negative experiences, the good and the bad? How do we deal with this? And Paul basically just reflects on, on these various people. He's going to mention a couple that did not go well uh, for him. He's going to mention a bunch of people that, that did well for him. But ultimately, we're going to see that his hope is not in these people. It's in Jesus. So let's look at uh, verse 9 through 15. I'll just read the section and then we'll back up and, and talk about what we're looking at here. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I, that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Okay, so, so as you can see that list of names, and a lot of times we read these, these lists and we go, well, why is he just talking about people all the time? Like, why, what's the names? What are these people? Right, well, we got to recognize this is a letter. Paul's writing this in the context of an actual life, right? He's not writing this in a vacuum. He's writing this in the real world. And he's acknowledging that there are these people in his life who have done him harm and have done well by him. And then a whole lot of people that, that for one reason or another have had to leave him. So, he, so let's just work through this a little bit. We're not going to look at every name. We're not going to talk about everybody's backstory, largely because we don't have everybody's backstory. There's a lot of people in this list we know nothing or virtually nothing about. Um, but we can pick up some clues about these people. First, in verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. So he's writing this letter, yes, to pass the baton, yes, to give Timothy his, his final instructions from Paul but he's really writing this letter to get Timothy to come to Rome and be with him. And, and Paul wants Timothy with him in these last days. So he's writing this letter to get, get him to come to, to Paul and say, hey, come on, get here quick. There's a couple practical reasons for this. One, uh, Paul left his cloak with Carpus. <laughs> he's like, oh, by the way, stop by Troas, get, find Carpus and get my coat, I'm cold, right? Uh, it's, like, it's just very human and practical, right? This is, this is just Paul. He's just writing this as a real person. If you and I were sitting in a Roman prison cell in a hole in the ground, we'd want our cloak too, right? So he's going, do that and bring me my, my books too. I need some reading material. I'm pretty bored here. 
Um, he's sitting in a, in a prison alone. He, he needs his parchments. He needs his writing materials. He's got to write more letters to other people. So above all, bring the parchments. He, he's telling Timothy these practical things. But notice back in verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me soon. And then he says in verse 10, for or because this guy named Demas, which just sounds wicked, right? That, that's just, you know, you're setting the guy up for failure when you name him Demas. Um, but Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So I don't, we don't know who Demas is. We, we don't know what the context of this is exactly, but we know that this guy deserted Paul. He uses a word that's a very strong verb. Uh, it means to utterly abandon and leave someone helpless in a dire situation. So this is not just, oh yeah, Demas had something else to do and he had to go. There, there are people in this list that did leave Paul for good reasons too for positive reasons, even some people that Paul says he sent away, right? So not everybody who's leaving the apostle Paul in Rome is leaving for a bad reason, but, but Demas is, is a deserter. He's left Paul in this situation that was very difficult, this dire situation, and he left him helpless. And so he says, I, Timothy, I need you to come here soon because Demas deserted me and went to Thessalonica. He, he's basically, this is, this is so human, right? This is so much like you and me. Paul was, a, was abandoned by someone he thought he could trust. And now he's calling on a friend that he knows he can trust to come and be with him. Come and be with me. Help, help me here. So he says, Demas deserted me. Then this guy named Crescens or Crescens has gone to Galatia. We don't know why. He doesn't tell us why, but he, he's gone. Titus went to Dalmatia. Now we know Titus was a, a guy that Paul wrote a letter to in the Bible as well. So there we're assuming Titus is going to Dalmatia for a good reason. Luke, uh, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, is still with Paul. So he still has one guy who's there for him. That's good. And then he says, get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful to me for ministry. So he says, come to me soon, but before you come, find Mark. I don't know, hopefully Timothy knows where Mark is, right? Uh, Go get Mark and bring him with, for he's very useful to me in ministry. Now, this this particular thing makes me really happy. This, this, This whole thing makes me so happy. I don't know if you guys know the story behind Mark. But it's a, it's a really profound story. And I just think this, this is amazing. Um, if you turn over to Acts chapter 15, we actually get some context about Mark. Um, and it's, it's really a, a cool story. So the end of chapter 15, basically as you're reading through the book of Acts, there's a guy named Barnabas. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas are doing ministry among the Gentiles together. From, from chapter uh, 13, they're sent off uh, to do ministry. And, and the, the book of Acts through a couple of chapters just kind of talks about Paul and Barnabas doing their thing and, and, and preaching the gospel and planting churches, doing amazing things. And then in chapter 15, they get back to Jerusalem to report to the church what God has been doing among the Gentiles. Chapter 15 is a really crucial chapter for, 
for us as Gentiles. But, but then you get to the end of chapter 15, and, and here's what you see in verse 36. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. See, Paul cares about people, like a lot, right? And he says, Barnabas, hey man, like, let's, now that we're done here in Jerusalem, let's go back to the, these, these believers who we've had an impact on and see how they're doing. Let's go. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, also called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them someone who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated, Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So this is an interesting thing. I don't think that the book of Acts is, is a, well, it is a historical record. So it's not making necessarily a moral judgment on this situation. It's just telling us what happened. And what happened is that Paul and Barnabas, who had been partners in, in ministry, separated from each other, had a sharp disagreement, couldn't see eye to eye, they basically had a fight about this, and it was all about this guy named Mark. And, and Paul's position was that Mark, who had apparently been with them in Pamphylia, this other place that they were at, left. He, he, did, he went somewhere else. He went back home. He didn't stick out the work. He didn't do what Paul thought he should do. And so Paul said, hey, I'm not bringing Mark with us. Mark's worthless to ministry. I don't think he'd think he was worthless as a person. But in ministry, Paul didn't think Mark was worth bringing around. Basically, he's saying, hey, why bring a guy along who's just dead weight? And Barnabas is going, no, no, no. Like, Mark's, Mark's cool. He's all right. He can, we can do this. And there rose, so this escalating thing of a sharp disagreement to the point that Barnabas said, all right, fine, I'll take Mark and I'll go do my thing. And Paul said, okay, fine, I'll bring this guy named Silas and we'll, we'll do our thing. And they separated. I don't know if this was right or wrong. I don't know if Paul was in the right and Barnabas in the wrong. I don't know if Paul was in the wrong and Barnabas in the right. I don't know. There's no, there's no moral judgment made here but we do know that the book of Acts continues to follow Paul and Silas and, these, and some of the other guys that Paul brings along the way. So what started in the book of Acts with Paul and Barnabas switches to now Timothy, Paul, and Silas are doing their thing. And that's what the book of Acts primarily focuses on. Barnabas pretty much goes, goes silent after that. And I don't know what, the, um, what we need to read into that. I'm just saying that that's how, that's how the book of Acts gets structured from there. So now flip back over to 2 Timothy and Paul says, go get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. Doesn't this just make you happy? <laughs> like, this is great because now Paul is going, you know what, that guy that I thought was dead weight and worthless, he's actually a, a cool guy and I want him here. Bring him with. There's restoration here. There's a healing of the relationship here. 
I don't know what happens in between uh, Acts 15 and 2 Timothy 4. Don't know what happens. Um, um, we have to speculate, right? We can't say for sure what happened, what took place. The scriptures don't record that for us. But somewhere along the way, between these two points, there was a reconciliation. There was, a, there was an obvious change of heart in the Apostle Paul towards Mark. That's such an encouraging thing. And, and I just think about that and, and I go, man, how, how many times have I been frustrated with, with some fellow Christian and thought, I don't want to be around these, these guys. They're bozos. They're ridiculous. Like I, I've had so many problems in my heart with that. You guys, you guys know, you guys know I'm a cranky dude sometimes. And that's just where I'm at. I'm like, I'm like, duh, come on. But I read this and I go, okay. All right, maybe I'm, maybe, actually I know that I'm wrong on a lot of these situations. And I came across this quote from a, a guy named John Newton. John Newton is most famous for writing the song Amazing Grace. And um, he, was a, he was a slave trader. Uh, he was a captain of a slave ship in the 1700s uh, for England during the, the global slave trade. This was before England uh, passed their legislation to ban the slave trade. Um, and John Newton, long before that, got convicted of his sins um, and quit slave trading and then eventually became a pastor. Uh, there's, a, there's, some, there's actually a really great biography about John Newton's life called Amazing Grace. It's worth a read if you ever uh, are interested in hearing that story. But John Newton, after he became a pastor, um, wrote a letter to a fellow minister who evidently was having a conflict with a with another pastor. So, you know, pastors fight each other sometimes. I don't know if you realize that or not, but we're humans and we are sinners. And so um, we don't always get along. But I think that what John Newton's advice to this other pastor, uh, what he says is so helpful for me. uh, And it's helpful for, I think, all of us who have fellow Christians. You don't have to be in ministry in the church necessarily to, to have this apply. I think any Christian that we struggle with and don't want to be around these words are helpful. So let me just read what John Newton's advice was. And here's what he says. If, if he says, if you account him a believer, even though greatly mistaken in some subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable, which says, deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him, or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects you should show tenderness to others from a sense of much forgiveness that you need yourself. In a little while you will meet in heaven and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have on earth. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. And that just crushed me reading that. <laughs> and in a good way, right? Like just, yeah. Like the, the, the pettiness that we find ourselves in sometimes with other Christians. We may disagree with fellow Christians on all kinds of important things, 
But if they're truly a believer and if we're truly believers in Jesus, our, our connection is way thicker than a theological disagreement. We will actually be happy in Christ forever together. And, and I think that that's what just this whole story with, with Mark and Paul brings that John Newton letter to, to the surface and go, wow, like that's what's happening. Jesus is being gracious towards the Apostle Paul and Mark in bringing this reconciliation. And how much more so for you and me as we, as we go through life with fellow believers that we just don't enjoy being around. We, we need to see them the way the Lord sees them. We need to treat them with tenderness because we are also sinners who need Jesus's tenderness. We need to forgive because we need forgiveness, all those things, right? And so that, that's just an amazing thing. And I, I hope that as we look at this and just seeing these little clues into Paul's uh, in, in the end of his life and the things that he dealt with, man, it's so cool to see that yes, there are people in this list that are really difficult and have done harm, harm to him, but there's also uh, some great, beautiful things that have brought reconciliation as well. So we're seeing this list of people. We don't have time to look at everybody again, right? But look at ver- verse 12, Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. So some people left because Paul sent them. And then he says, when you come, bring the cloak and the books and the parchment. And then this last guy he mentions is Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith is worth just mentioning because he's also mentioned in the book of uh, 1 Timothy. So when we were back in 1 Timothy, we met this guy named Alexander and um, he had done a ton of harm to the church in Ephesus. That's why Paul wrote 1 Timothy largely was to correct the, the things that, that Alexander and a couple other guys had done in that church. And apparently, even to this point that he's writing these words, this Alexander uh, did great harm, but he says the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will take care of this. Paul doesn't need to hold on to bitterness. Paul doesn't need to hold on to to just uh, this grudge. He can let it go and say, you know what? Yes, there's been great harm, but the Lord will handle it. And we need to take that approach too. He says to beware of him yourself, Timothy, for he strongly opposed our message. Basically, he's saying, listen, the Lord will handle this situation, but you don't need to like buddy up with him either. It's, it's, he's, he's a problem. So stay away, but, but uh, we'll, we'll trust the Lord with it. So basically all of that, we're going to turn into verse 16 in just a moment, but all of that first section that we read really highlights the issue that, that people, fellow human beings play a role in our, in our Christian walk, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. But here's the thing. Um, that's true for Paul and that's true for you and me. And just like with Paul and this mixed bag of people, it is that way for us, right? Because we live in a sinful world. We don't live in a world where everybody is what they ought to be. We're not what we ultimately ought to be. All of us have shortcomings and failures and all of us have to recognize that we're living in a world with fellow humans. Even some fellow humans that follow Jesus just maybe in in ways that aren't positive for us, right? 
we, we still have to recognize that in this broken world, at the end of the day, it is not people that we have to turn to. At the end of the day, it's not people that fulfill our lives. At the end of the day, it's not people who make us eternally happy and safe. That's where we get into verse 16. Look at what Paul says here. He says, at my first defense, so at the defense meaning his, his appearing in the court in Rome. So he's talking about that, that appearance where he had to defend himself to the Roman leaders. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Okay, let's stop there for a second before we turn to 17. Paul says, at at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. He uses that word desert again, this this abandonment, this this sense of, uh, man, leaving somebody in a helpless situation. Paul acknowledges that he was alone, and you can hear that that hurt him, right? That hurt him. And, and it, it should have hurt him. He's a, he's a person, right? And he, he, he needs, at least in some regard, he needs other people in his life. And, and here he is in his most desperate hour and no one comes to his side. He's there alone. He acknowledges that he was hurt. He acknowledged that he was abandoned. He acknowledged that he was rejected by people. You know, Paul felt that. And you and I feel that. It, it, is, it is not something that we have to pretend doesn't hurt when the people who should love us and care for us fail to do it. That can and should make us feel something. I mean, Paul was hurt by these people. Jesus also, though, felt that sense of abandonment too. In the Garden of Gethsemane, everyone Jesus called a friend in that world, in his world, abandoned him. So we don't need to pretend that we're not hurt. We don't need to get the, you know, the, the old, the, the way the British talk about it is that stiff upper lip, you know. And we, we can get that stiff upper lip in our culture too, where we just have to power through. We don't have to acknowledge this. This is actually painful, right? We don't need to live in that way. We can be honest with the Lord and honest with ourselves, and honest with the people around us, that we are hurt when we are abandoned and rejected. But, but listen, we can't live in that forever. We can't swim in that sea of despair. Paul says, no one came to stand by me. They all deserted me. But then he says, may it not be charged against them. He's, he's releasing that hurt into forgiveness. But the reason he can do that is is the key. It's verse 17 and 18. He says, But even though I was rejected and abandoned and deserted, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed 
and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a glorious passage because it teaches us something vital that when, even when we are actually deserted by everyone, and hopefully you'll never experience that as Paul did, but even if you do, even if I do, the hope is not in that. The hope is in the fact that we will never actually be deserted by Jesus. I don't think there's anything more painful in life than the betrayal and the abandonment of someone who was supposed to love us. Maybe that, and I think we've all experienced this to some degree or another, right? And some of us have experienced it to much greater degrees than others, but we, we know this. I'm not, I'm not trying to say this to make you feel your feels. I'm just, I'm just telling you, like, maybe your parents didn't stick with you. Maybe your spouse didn't stick with you. Maybe your kids don't stick with you. It, like, that's a reality in a broken and fallen world. And we need to feel the hurt of that and acknowledge it, but also not swim in it. We need to pivot our hearts to the gospel, which is that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. So Paul's not like whitewashing his experience. He's acknowledging the betrayal and the hurt and the desertion he felt. But it's clear in this that, that his encouragement is not in the fact that he had people or not. His encouragement is in the fact that Jesus stood by him and strengthened him and continued with him through it all. He takes himself where we need to take ourselves, which is that we are safe, kept, and loved forever in Jesus, no matter what happens to us at the hands of others. So here's where we need to land. People, even the best people in our lives, are not where we ought to find our hope. And, and when, we, when people inevitably fail to be what we hope they will be, we shouldn't be in despair. We shouldn't swim in a sea of, of, of just absolute destruction. We need to find our comfort and hope in the person and work of Jesus. Because he's the only one who will truly never leave us nor forsake us. He is the the one who will truly stand by us and and rescue us and keep us, right? Look, Look at what he says. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through Paul, the message might be proclaimed. He did that for a purpose in his life. But then verse 18, he says that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. See, Paul's hope is not in God preserving his physical life here and now. His hope is that Jesus will keep him and deliver him safely to his heavenly kingdom, to his eternal home, to be where Christ is. And, and as, I, as I think about this passage, I'm just reminded how, how often the scriptures remind us of this reality of who Jesus is and what he's done and how he is there for us. Um, just one example from the Old Testament, and there are hundreds of them, 
but one example, Psalm 136. Psalm 136 says 26 times. There's 26 verses, and at the end of every verse, first it recounts something that the Lord did for his people, and then it concludes, every verse concludes with, for his faithful or steadfast love endures forever. 26 times that psalm repeats that line, for his faithful love endures forever. Why the repetition? Why the constant reminder? As you read that psalm, we can just blow past it because it's like, okay, I get it. No, no. It's repeated and repeated and repeated because we need to get it drilled into our head that the Lord will never leave us. He is with us forever, faithful. Jesus in John chapter 6 tells us this. He says in verse 37 to 40, that everyone that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one that comes to me, I will never cast out. You will come to Jesus because the Father brings you to Jesus. But here's the thing. When you come to Jesus, you will never be thrown away. You will never be cast out. Here's why. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those whom he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus tells us, I will never cast you out. I will never leave you. I will always be with you to the very end of raising us up on that last day, the promise of resurrected life, which is what Paul in 2 Timothy 4 is anchoring his hope to, that he will be rescued and delivered safely into Christ's heavenly kingdom. So, Verse 19 through 22, let's just read. These are the last words, and he's just going to give a lot of shout-outs here. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And that word you is the plural word you in Greek. So he's not just writing to Timothy. He's writing to, to the church, to all of us. Um, and he wants the grace of God to be with us. Fundamentally, this reminder of God's gracious and faithful love brings us to the heart of Jesus. L- listen to the, the words of Dane Ortland. Dane Ortland wrote this uh, in, in a devotional book that, that he wrote, and I just think it's amazing. He says that God did not deliver us because we deserved it. He did not save us because we impress him. He delivers because it is who he is toward wayward sinners. Then he says this, do you feel like you've used up God's reserve of love for you? 
do you not realize that the more you need of his love, the more his heart gives it? There's no ceiling to it. There's no end of the line. He gives himself, all of himself to you. All of you. Listen, that is the heart of Jesus for us. Paul recognized it at the end of his life. Everyone else left him for one reason or another. Some, some left for good reasons, some left for bad. But he's left alone, except he's not actually alone because the Lord's with him. And that is true for you and me. There is no end to the reserve of love that God has for you. There is no ceiling. There's no way that we can cap it. There's no way we can sin our way out of it. He loves us and he will continue to pour out his faithful love to us because that's who he is. That's his heart. And so we need to run to him for the hope that we, that we so desperately need. We need to shed all of our hopes from people and put it all onto Christ. And then Christ, in his mercy, will actually give us people who are gracious and helpful along the way. That's one of the sweetnesses of his mercy. We don't need other people in a sense of the same way we need Jesus. But because Jesus is kind, he does give us people. And we, we can rest in, in the, the kindness that he is for us in that. So let me just remind you of this. You may be deserted by everyone in your life. That'd be terrible. And I hope it never happens. But your comfort and hope needs to rest always in Jesus because he's here for you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have loved us in Christ, that you have secured us in you, that you have kept us and will continue to keep us to the end. The words that Paul wrote to Timothy are just such helpful reminders that the world we live in is a mixed bag of positive and negative experiences at the hands of other people. But there is a steadfast faithful love in you. God, I know our our sinful hearts will have a hard time reaching that. So would you help us to be secured in those realities? Would you help us to find the deepest longing of our souls met in you? Would you remind us now as we go to the table of, of your supper, and we, as we eat and drink in remembrance of you, would you help us to know that the death you died and the resurrection that you, that you came back to life through is what guarantees that we will never be cast out and guarantees that we will be delivered safely to you in your heavenly kingdom. We pray that our hearts would be drawn into that and respond to it as you would lead. We pray that you would give us that grace today in Jesus' name. Amen.